0: What would you do about the problem of alligators in our suburbs? You have two minutes. It's a great question, Ray. Actually, my neighbor's terrier disappeared last week, and we're pretty sure... Excuse me, do do you smell coffee?
1: Oh, that's me. I've got a little Keurig machine behind my podium. This flavor is Jamaica me crazy. You get it? Jamaica me crazy.
0: Mr. Moderator, this is not right. Surely this violates the rules we agreed to.
1: Actually, I, I don't see anything here that specifically mentions coffee makers. You just wish you had some. It's not fair. It's so not fair. You know what else I have up here? What? The special kind of candy. It looks like metal, but it tastes like raspberry and chocolate. You can't even get it in stores. Where did you get it? My dad. Mr. Moderator, does she really have special candy? There is no
2: candy like that. She's just making that up to upset you.
1: Can I have my
0: Aquaman action figure up here? You may not.
2: Why? Because I was told I could not have my action figures here, so that would not be fair.
1: I've got the coffee and the candy and you've got nothing. Looks like I win the debate. I'm governor. Today on the show, will the nose abolish Friday Night Lights? Fight back against Amazon? Crack down on gamers? And now he froze some of his eggs, but now they smell funny. Colin McEnroe.
2: That's right. Uh, I'm just, and then what I'm singing to my eggs is, let it go, let it go. Uh, we, are gonna, we may be talking about frozen eggs today. We will be talking about frozen eggs. Doggone it. So uh, that, uh, you probably understand that the opening was a reference to uh, the debate in Florida, gubernatorial debate, which was delayed for seven minutes when uh, Governor Rick Scott refused to take the stage because his opponent, Charlie Crist, um, had a little fan that was cooling him uh, behind his podium. Uh, And this has turned into quite a brouhaha in the media. Of course, the real problem is Charlie Crist is soft. He needs a fan. He's soft in the way that Steve Allman wants all of our children to be soft uh, when football gets taken away from them. Steve Allman is one of our news panelists today and the best-selling author of the best-selling Against Football, My Personal Quest to Bring a Great Nation to Its Knees. That is actually not (laughs) the subtitle. Uh, I lost so many sales. Yes. Tonight, he will participate in masculinity and it's – by the way, Everything I'm about to tell you is true, all right, about this panel and their determination uh, to destroy the the spine of America, all right? So tonight, Steve Allman will uh, participate in uh, Masculinity and Its Discontents. It's a discussion about football, war, and the American way. It includes Steve Allman, the aforementioned Steve Allman, William Giraldi, uh, author of Hold the Dark, uh, ESPN blogger Darcy Main, and Iraq veteran uh, Ryan Henowitz. Our friend Mike Pesca is moderating the panel. Uh, So that's tonight. Now, tomorrow, well, James Hanley, also on the news today, is the iron-fisted czar of Trinity Cine Studio. Tomorrow, (laughs) any shreds of American masculinity that still remain after Steve is done trying to destroy the spine of this nation, will be blown away on an al- alpine wind as James hosts, and this is real, sing-along Sound of Music. Wow. 2.30 uh, in the afternoon on uh, With Saturday, nuns. With nuns. Why tackle when you can yodel ironically? Uh, so that will be a 2.30 on Saturday. You have a sing-along, Sound of Music, at Trinity Cinema Studio. Tracy Wu Fassenberg does something very important at the Mark Twain House. Coming up on their calendar is, A, a huge event involving the Broadway musical Wicked and a live conversation with Noam Chomsky. Could there be a more clear assault on American masculinity and other core values than those two events? So that's who's with us today. It's, it, it's up to me, I think, you know, to, to do what I can here. Um, So we're going to begin with, in fact, Steve Allman's uh, latest assault on American values. Uh, He's uh, written a piece – Suggesting really the abolition of high school football. Uh, what uh, what What is it, he writes, what is a dangerous, insanely commercialized form of athletic combat doing in our public schools? In an era when parents lament rising class sizes, crumbling facilities, and underpaid teachers, why are taxpayers underwriting a form of entertainment that quite literally causes students to suffer diminished brain function? Um, I sort of assumed that uh, Wu and James wouldn't even want to talk about this, but it turns out they do. So... Um, First of all, Steve Allman, what have you got to say for yourself?
0: Well, I appreciated that um, nuanced and balanced view of my views. And I should mention that I'm, of course, wearing a dress, as is James right now, <laughs> and panties, minor crotchless. Now, as to the high school football question, I actually, and I hate to infect your beautiful hosting with any kind of factual accuracy, mm-hmm. but I'm not actually calling for the abolition of football. That would be un-American and ridiculous. What I'm suggesting is that when we pay taxes for a public high school, what we're emphasizing, I think, the cultural values are that we want that school to provide an education. And what has happened is that we now accept that especially in programs where high schools where football is a big deal, a lot of their institutional resources are actually devoted to staging football games, building a stadium. There are places down in Texas and Florida and elsewhere where high school football is religion, i.e. Friday Night Lights and that weird form of football porn – And, in fact, tons of institutional resources are going towards building a $100,000 stadium or a million-dollar stadium. And the kids who play the game are actually segregated from the rest of the population and taught to be very good at one thing. Playing football for our entertainment doesn't mean they don't instill certain good values, discipline, perseverance, all the rest, which they might also get, for instance, from a good teacher or a book. But I know that sort of in the American Uh, sort of romanticization of football, that's the only way that I think some people feel that uh, certain boys, by which we usually mean uh, boys from economically vulnerable neighborhoods, usually boys of color, can actually find a path to any kind of economic redemption, which is in in and of itself incredibly racist and degrading and inefficient, since only one in 500 high school seniors who plays football, is ever going to make it to the pros, probably be there for a couple of years and broke several years afterwards. Other than that, though, I think it's a great idea.
2: Um, as we go along here, our phone number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Uh, and uh, you may also tweet us at WNPR, Colin, wnpr. So James, you understand that this is the Brown kind of football. It's a non-spheroidal. Yes, I I
3: drew a picture of the shape of the ball just to remind me when I was (laughs) reading up about this. But I have to say just uh, by declaration that as I was growing up in England, I was raised in England until I was 17. And I had great hostility to ball games at school. And so I I didn't develop any sort of expert knowledge. um, But I have to say that I think that the driving force for this is not so much a sort of romanticization. I think the romanticization is kind of like a creation of a vast commercial enterprise, right. a sixteen billion dollar sort of industry, which uh, is uh, making huge amounts of money off essentially trivializing the lives of the players and saying that okay, you know, we know you're going to get brain damaged, but you know, deal with it. And there's so much money to be made here. And so this part of their campaign is to create the idea that this is essential to school spirit. This right. is essential to maleness, that uh, in fact it contains all kinds of indications of male insecurity, completely the opposite. but. It, it somehow because of the amount of money and because of the ability to create an impression. And I think, again, we run up against the thing of the lack of critical thinking. People are not asking questions about stuff like what you raised, Steve, about uh, the, what you're paying taxes for in a school. Where is the money going You know, to teach you to, to, to work the world, to be able to develop your talents and be a critical thinker? Instead, you're – wasting the money on something that is really serving a commercial purpose. Can I
0: say one quick thing? And I I should emphasize this. Actually, what I'm calling for is for in public high schools for there to not be organized football. People want to go play football. That's fine. It's the industry that's grown up around the game. And what they can do if they really want to have a football team is do what you would do in Europe, actually, which is to have private leagues. That's the way it goes. They just recognize in Europe that hotbed of men in dresses that Actually, the best way to have a secondary education is to have secondary education happening. And then if you want to have extracurriculars like sports, that can happen too, but just in a private league. So nobody's actually talking about banning it, just not putting the taxpayer on the hook for it and not diverting institutional resources or students, frankly, from what their, what their job should be in high school, which is to develop a critical thinking, their moral system, whatever else.
2: T.C. Fastenberg, I don't know how many babies you're actually planning to uh, place on this earth, but are you going to let any of them play football?
4: You know, actually, when I first got pregnant, my husband and I talked about this because I am actually not a football fan. Of the game itself, I find it a little boring, and I'm sure I'll get, you know, smacked around for for saying that by football fans possibly in this room. Um, But one of the things I was concerned about was if we did have a boy – um, playing football it was you know right around the time all the stories were coming about coming out about the concussions all the other uh, damaging physical effects of the game and some of these kids start really young in their peewee football and, and sure you know more precautions are taken at that age but is it enough um, and then you think about that sort of like masculine culture that's grown up around football which we've seen sort of um, more and more in these stories about domestic violence and, and other kinds of violence and things like that and I think that sort of gets started at a very young age in this all-male culture. Um, In Steve's article that that referenced the violence that happened in New Jersey with the hazing, I mean, that was horrifying. And so I sort of worried about bringing a boy into this world and into that sort of world as well. Um, I agree that club sports, perfectly fine, but having gone to a high school where our football team was not even very good, I I hear it's good now, but I haven't followed it. Um, You know, I was at every football game because I was in the band. You know, our, our fall schedule revolved around the football games. Um, So you are a musical
2: enabler is what you were saying. Yes, yes.
4: But we had a hard time raising what we needed for for our concerts, our rugby shirts that we had to wear to the football games we had to purchase out of pocket, um, our own instruments and that type of thing, whereas there was an entire booster club for the football team. So I certainly understand resources. It's not just the money that goes there, but the parental resources and the support in other ways where there are many other activities that impart other talents and, and skills Two students that should be at least equally uh, thought
2: of. Well, let me just challenge on this a little bit. I mean, actually, I sort of totally agree with pretty much everything that's been said here so far. And I've I've followed this whole question for a couple of years now. And uh, Steve writes about uh, a program in Michigan uh, where they're they're basically doing this. Uh, But it's been going on. There have been other school systems that have done it. Including, I think, even one within the last couple of years in Texas, of all places, where the mm-hmm. superintendent basically said, "We just don't have enough money to do this," you right. know, and do everything else. And so he ended football. And you know what? There was no big problem. Nobody. It was there was a surprisingly little hue and cry once everybody realized, "Oh yeah, well, it does eat up a lot of money, and we need that for other stuff." However, just for fun and just to get you ready for tonight, I mean, I assume there'll be sure. people uh, on the panel who will go in this direction. Um, you know, I've been sort of interested in the notion of President Obama as our first ever post-football president, you know, in the sense that, you know, as, as you say in his book, uh, in your book, you know, he actually said publicly if he had a son, he wouldn't, let him, wouldn't want him to play football. Um, first president ever to say anything like that. And, you know, I mean, Bill Clinton played in the band with Tracy w. Fastenberg, But, you know, a lot of the other presidents have played football or right. kind of um, emblemized football in a lot of different ways. And they've had in their administrations, guys like, you know, Hank Paulson, who was George Bush's treasury the secretary, who I'm pretty sure was a lineman for Dartmouth and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then it kind of boils down to what do you think of that and what do you think of America? And, you know, if you're not happy with America right now and the way that Barack Obama does things, you could say, well, you know, maybe, maybe – there's a tie between the fact that he's a post-football president and the fact that he's not as decisive as we'd like him to be. He doesn't push back as fast as we want him to. You know, that, that maybe maybe there is some, you know, the, the notion that wars are won on the playing fields of eaten. You know, maybe there's something really good about America that we have people who go through this process and they get tough and, and they're able to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm being a devil's advocate here, but, I mean, doubtless yeah. you have a, a – any answer to this? anyway?
0: Well, I would say that actually what's emblematic about Obama's uh, take on football is that it's so completely wimpy and hypocritical. Like what he said, basically, is I wouldn't let my son play, by which, by extension, what he's saying is let some other set of American parents' kids get brain damage or risk being brain damage or ha- have diminished brain function so that I can watch. Well, football's
2: a metaphor for a war. That's how we handle war, too. Let other kids fight it. Let other families' kids fight them. Th-
0: that might be right, but I would say in terms of our foreign interventions, that's probably a wiser approach if you are an American parent to say, actually, that's – I don't know that it, the imperial impulse has done us much good – as evidenced by the last couple of serious engagements that, but getting away from that for a second, I, I just want I know there's some people who might be listening saying, "Hey, what are you talking about? You know one point one million kids play high school football, and there aren 't that many concussions they 're not walking around brain damage." they did a a, an incredibly chilling study out at Purdue where they put sensors in the helmets of two dozen high school players they wanted to find out what's the effect of concussions because everybody says well it's concussions that's the real danger but actually the danger is physics and physiology brains a soft organ inside a hard shell and the players are bigger and faster and stronger at every level because of the economic incentives it's become this huge industry even at the high school level so what they found is not just that the kids with concussions showed diminished brain function but the kids the control group, who never had gotten a concussion, had diminished brain function over the course of the season to the point that some of them had no brain function in one of their frontal lobes. And if you think about that, that's not the nanny state. That's not some mamby-pamby liberal thing saying, oh my gracious, we need to overprotect our kids. You can't insulate kids from risk, nor should we try to. That's part of the normal process in life is you get a skin knee or whatever it is. So I played football when I was a teenager. I got a couple of dislocated shoulders, I got a concussion, and I wanted to play more. That is partly how certain kinds of competitive, insecure boys like me prove themselves in the world. So it's not about abolishing that activity, but it is organized and sanctioned and actually diverts resources in high schools. And if that same result, diminished brain function, were coming from anything else, like a gas leak in the cafeteria, there would be a communal freak out about it, I mean, it's significant that Buzz Bissinger, the guy who wrote Friday Night Lights, Mm -hmm. now sees that football, this beautiful game that I think is gripping as a fan and utterly thrilling as a spectacle, is he views that the industry that's grown up around it as completely venal. He says it turns young men into animals that's the guy who wrote the sort of elegy to high school football and the way it has become entrenched in small-town America.
2: Well, let me shift gears slightly and just talk about sort of, so we're also we're talking about young male aggression, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it comes out on the football field and an argument sometimes is made, well, at least this creates kind of a disciplined, channeled environment for all this. And one of the other stories that we looked at this week is the story of Gamergate, which is these uh, young men who don't play football. They sit down in the basement spraying cheese directly into their mouths and washing it down with fresca and and playing, <laughs> I don't know uh, if it's Fresca, calling, uh, washing it down with God knows what, uh, and and playing video games. Except that they've now coalesced into this sort of you know pudgy, pasty version of ISIS, where they're they're you know they're threatening women, they're they're causing speeches to be canceled because of bomb threats, and driving women who are critical of their culture in one way or another from their houses in fear. Um, and you know, you just sort of think. Well, I mean, maybe young male aggression is something that we just, you know, we, it, it comes out somehow. I mean, which is not necessarily an argument against getting rid of football, but it is an argument about, you know, I mean, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, this is as frightening a culture to me as football is, maybe even a little bit more so. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
4: It seems like if you look at both of these, these are both cultures that exclude women to to a great extent. You know, you can make an argument, oh, there are women gamers, there are women programmers, yada, yada. But, you know, it's such a low percentage. And it seems like wherever you have a large group of males, it sort of devolves into this, this is our territory, this is our, you know, this is our thing. You start trying to put rules on it or limitations or you start trying to make it to whatever, you know, adding some feminine aspect to it. And the same sort of thing seems to come out, this sort of aggression. And, and I was shocked to see that in the Gamergate fiasco that it suddenly, it suddenly just kind of trickles down to this sexual aggression and these threats of sexual violence against these women. Um, you know, it's just – it's so uncivilized. It's so disgusting and pathetic at this point. I,
3: I think it comes from a simple commercial exploitation of the idea that insecurity is dealt with by aggression amongst males and it is funded... That's, that's it, nonsense! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it is such a ludicrous notion when you think about it, but I mean, this is all about re- like respecting people who are not like you or respecting women, that women might have a different attitude about something, that you need to listen sometimes, that you need to really learn something at a critical time in your life and not actually be the recipient of this vast commercial pressure to be aggressive and obnoxious as a male, that that's what will make you the male. Well, of course, it'll make you the kind of male that these commercial pressures want. They want this industry to continue. It's an exploitation, simple as that. And I don't think that um, there's much of a pressure to actually say, you know, you're, you're, you're ridiculed if you say, well, look, you know, you've got a, an adolescent boy with aggression, which is probably based on insecurity. So let's deal with the insecurity. Right. Let's actually talk about that. Let's actually spend some money right. in the school instead of on this vast program of aggression and actually look at what's behind it and teach people something. Right. I,
0: I think the common thread for me is moral disassociation. So what you have, and this happens on the Internet sort of en masse, is people basically suppressing their empathy. When you go online, I will say this as somebody who's online, like you just have a different code. You get up in people's faces. You're more aggrieved. You let your aggression out of the box, especially men, I think, but women too. There's a moral disassociation. What I was trying to talk about in Against Football is not to turn to feminize anybody, but to argue that there is this same moral disassociation that takes place on a mass scale. And you're yeah. right, with definite corporate interests that's creating all the wrong incentives, basically economic incentives, and to some extent, glory. That's what we're selling to young men. Here's the way you're going to get glory. Here's the only way you're going to have worth in the world. And it's usually young men who have no other clear path to worth because we haven't given them good schools, economic opportunities, support for their families. So they say, of course they're going to make that decision. What I'm interrogating is why do we as fans – Why do we make that decision to consume the violence? And how is it that we are actually disassociating ourselves morally in the way they think that these gamers are doing? I mean, that's, that's the problem, is that they don't have another human being in the room going... That's right. not okay. They wouldn't have the guts I to. I agree totally. Right. Yeah,
3: that's right on the mark. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so, so it's very distressing to realize as you look at all these cultural stories, wait a second, what we're really talking about is a kind of moral disassociation. Mm-hmm. Obama says, well, you know, gee, I hope they make it more safe so the fans can rest easier. I wouldn't let my own son play, but I love a good game. And that's part of his pandery you know, unexamined, well, his own masculinity not being examined, when he should be saying, let me take a step back. If I'm the guy who really grew up as a, you know, single parent in poverty, you know, why don't, why aren't I actually advocating for a system of thought and policy that creates real economic opportunity and why don't I recognize that football and other organized commercialized sports are antithetical to that yeah. it's because he does a moral disassociation it's him trying to have a beer with the with you know with the and and sort of prove his masculine bona fides to independent male voters who are going to say gee you're just too thoughtful and self-reflective which means you're gay
3: which and there's a lot of money to be made from that moral disassociation i mean the very yeah. nature of gaming online, the anonymity, the the online community, makes it possible to actually exploit that.
2: I'm going to grab a quick call from uh, Suzanne from New Milford. I just And I want to come back to the whole issue of online culture, which is really fascinating uh, to me. But uh, hi, Suzanne, you're on the air. And, no, you're not on the air, actually. Hi, Suzanne, are you there? No? No, maybe not. Um, all right, let me just – I have know, to say I never liked Suzanne. It's yeah. just a Aww. personal Aww. thing. No, but she's I was, a, no. a good person. She's just got a little <laughs> – uh, she may. Who knows? She, she may have been intimidated by there's like three guys and one woman, and it's just, it's just like a male dominated show. Um, you know, what what fascinates me about online civilization, or, and it is we've watched the the construction of a digital civilization. Right. You know, in the space of what twenty years tops, and so. You know, unlike football, and Steve and, and other writers have sort of traced the evolution of football, and, you know, I mean, it was a pretty uncontrolled thing and a really incredibly dangerous sport when it was first right. being played and people were dying and stuff like that. Online culture, we've kind of had, you know, a chance to sort of watch this happen. And, and yeah, obviously it grows by leaps and bounds and it's, it's a hard thing to police. But I'm amazed at the degree to which it is, this male-dominated, aggression-dominated culture, even on the sites of... You know, big media companies, 50% right. of whose customers are women, you know, right. and, and I work for one of those big media companies, not this one, but I've been working with the Hartford Current and just talking to them about, you know, look, there's men on the threads of my columns who are intimidating women and like in really kind of scary ways. And having people just sort of saying, well, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, you know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. And I don't know. I mean, I'm astonished at that, that we – I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, Tracy <laughs> with Fosterburg, that we built a civilization in 20 years mm-hmm. that is as exclusive and ag- of and uh, aggressive toward women as all the bad stuff that came before. It. It's like we didn't even learn anything.
4: Right. And I actually think what's really interesting is that as more and more sort of commenting platforms and forums – move away from the opportunity to have those anonymous comments and folks have to link it to an email account, a Facebook account, or whatever that identifies them, you would think that that would have decreased the number of sort of misogynistic, threatening, aggressive commentary going on, but it hasn't. It's almost like People aren't afraid. They're not afraid of having that associated with themselves because they feel maybe a uh, still a false sense of anonymity. You know, oh, it's just my name. Nobody could ever find me. They don't know who I am or whatever. And you would have thought that people would have some sort of sense of shame and edit themselves a little bit or stop and think and say that isn't appropriate because I'm commenting towards that person who has a name. But people still don't care. And that's what's horrifying. It's, it's scary.
0: I, I have this book, uh, Colin. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Letters from People Who Hate Me. Uh, and it is, in fact, letters from many people who hate me based on whatever my various writings. Uh, and it's fascinating. You know, uh, you're Hitler, you're Stalin, you should be uh, beheaded is one of the recent ones. Your daughter looks like a maggot. Uh, what? Yeah, oh. it's awesome. She does look like a maggot, kind of. But anyway, any rate, the point is that there are these ad hominems. And I think part of what is the barrier to market, you know, what we've done is we've traded privacy and we've sort of traded a certain kind of dignity and Personal discourse for the convenience of, and this is where maybe we're going to head towards Amazon, of discourse where you just are at a computer terminal in a little in your mm-hmm. basement. Mm-hmm. Years ago, somebody would have had to write a letter to the editor. These guys, the barrier to them actually being jerks in the world is so low. All they have to do is say, "Sure, I'll make up a Hotmail account. I've got one anyway for my other, you know, my mm-hmm. other trolling, my <laughs> other trolling." Exactly, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, I think if you sort of dig beneath these letters, to me, they're very sad uh, documents. They're kind of the id of this country. They're sort of the uh, Fox News without it being cleaned up at all and made ready for prime it's fear, time.
3: It's fear-based. And, and one of the things that's fascinating to me is like, you know, as uh, there are many times when I've done public events at Cine Studio uh, where we've had a filmmaker or we've had a speaker. It might have been on a political point, something like that. And one of the things you learn very quickly is how quickly it can get out of control if yep. you're not paying attention to what's going on. One person in that group who can dominate the conversation and start to become insulting, Correct. start to you know turn it into a, 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 an ad hominem attack or make a point, that's the worst thing, is that right. they'll make a statement themselves that is about them. If there isn't somebody there who's in charge of the event, who's like moving on to somebody else, bringing somebody else in, you're actually marshalling that like an editor, essentially, who's, who's editing the content. It, it, the, there is a tendency for it to devolve to the bottom, it which is nuclear. what happens. It yeah. goes nuclear on the web because there is nobody doing that really. Yeah. And in fact, some people actually, I think on some sites, encourage it because that's what brings people to see how awful it is. Let, but, me,
2: to, let me just read a few tweets here. We're going to have to sort of wrap this segment up here anyway. I want to just read a few tweets from women. Um, Sarah writes, the hero worship and sense of being above the rules, she's talking about football the hero worship and the sense of being above the rules imparted on boys at such a young age contributes to the aggressive behavior Parentheses down the line, obviously. Uh, Nancy tweets, "This is the most truth I've heard uh, spoken in public for a long time." And uh oh, Trisha Navarro tweets, "This Alman guy is brilliant. I fully support separation of public education and football." I had no idea. Anyone Clearly else brilliant this. listener. Come um, on. So I just thought, just maybe, I'd tell a quick story which could touch off like a whole other Steve Allman discourse, but it also gets right to James' point about the corporatation, corporatation, corporatization of this. It's on my mind anyway because later today I'm going to a Memorial service for a former editor of the current, a guy who kind of just stood against all this stuff. But in the middle of the digital revolution, um, newspapers were trying to figure out what to do with all this aggressive comment, comments and how to handle these comments that freely flow up onto sites. And uh, those of us who had columns, we had those comments just flowing up. But we also had blogs where we had a little bit more control. We could do some comment moderation. And every newspaper brought in these digital gurus. You know, they were always these guys who were like 25 years old or something. And and their whole idea was, you know, the theory at that moment was – you know, everything should go. A- anything goes. Right. You know, you'll have a more lively presence on the internet if you're really, really open to even, like, really horrible people. And I remember this meeting where a whole bunch of us columnists and writers were in a room with this digital guy named Danny. And Danny's telling us all this stuff. And he looked at the football writer, a guy named Desmond Connor, young African, at that time, young African-American football player. And he said, you know, Desmond, I, and I've seen some of the comments that you deal with and everything and, um, I would just really really encourage you to be as open as you can to, you know, letting as many of them go up there. Even, you know, I don't know whatever the line is where you just can't stand it anymore, but go right up to that line, basically, is what he's saying. And I'm thinking... God only knows what these comments are like. But basically, this guy is saying, figure out how much you can put up with with having everything about you insulted and called into question on the Steve Allman, you know, Letters That Hate Me basis. And then maybe go a little further. Just the way you push yourself on the football field, push yourself to accept more of this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this is such a bad idea. (laughs) Um, But that's sort of your point, James, too, which is that, there's there's a sense that this is worth something as a commodity exactly it is exactly. actually
0: i mean it's the attention economy and, and it, that's exactly what the it, what the internet does it yeah. plays to our basest instincts and what matters is clicks this is why there's mm. so much of clickbait headlines you can't look at a piece and everybody does it now i mm. had a piece up on the la times website los angeles times it's mm. not some small operation and it was basically about you know uh, fans should be responsible. We're ultimately the sponsors of the NFL. We've got to hold them accountable. That was the premise of the piece. They had a conservative blogger who blogged and essentially said, Almond's problem is with maleness and questioned how I parent my kids. Why did they m- – my son specifically was going to wind up soft – it was full of factual inaccuracies. Why would the L.A. Times run that? Because they wanted to get lots of comments.
2: Right. Exactly. Everybody
4: is, Yeah,
0: right. yeah
2: the, cli- the clicks, the comments, they're all worth something. We've got to take a break here. When we come back, we'll see how much aggression we can stir up in Tracy Wu Fastenberg over the subject of frozen eggs.
4: Maybe you just heard the worst day of your life. You know there's no escape, there's no excuse, so just suck up. Suck up and be nice As be nice. be
1: nice. be nice. be nice.
2: All right. So um, out in the Silicon Valley and the rest of the digital world, you know, they're trying to attract top talent. They're saying to ourselves, to themselves, how can we get the Tracy Wu Fastenbergs uh, of this world? <laughs> well, we've already offered to add possibly two or three zeros to the puny salary she makes at the Mark Twain house. What else can we do? Well, how about this? Because, in fact, she's a nursing mother right now. It's very convenient. You have to go into work and you've got, you got a million logistical problems to solve. Here's their solution. In the Silicon Valley arms race to lure the top talent with the best benefits, I'm reading from an article, Facebook and Apple are adding egg freezing for female employees. The two companies may be the first to pay for the procedure for women who choose it to delay childbearing. The addition of egg freezing to the I just like saying egg freezing. The addition of egg freezing to the benefits plan comes as tech companies face mounting pressure to hire more women. and of course, if you're going to hire more women, you've got to offer them egg insurance. So uh, That's exactly. not my term that's not, that's not even my term. That's actually legal yeah, a legal term. There's a community <laughs> yeah. forum called Eggsurance, where they all talk about this. So I would have thought this would make you so happy. And instead you say you're seething. What do you even look like when you're seething?
4: Pretty much the same thing until I, my head explodes, right, and then it's okay. a big cleanup mess. Um, I love the fact that medical science has, has given this opportunity to women. I like that it's a choice, but what I hate about this is the fact that it's the companies offering it to women with, with not a whole other host of options. It's saying if you want to, quote, quote, have it all, you have to put off that part of it, and here we're going to help you put that off instead of giving the opportunity for flexible working hours, longer maternity leave, you know, other sorts of options to make motherhood and a flourishing career possible. Um, and that's where I have the issue is the corporation. We're back to corporations again saying this is what you should do in order to have it all. We're being so nice to help you. We're going to let you, you know, make popsicles out of your eggs so you can put this off. And, and frankly, you know, I put off motherhood a little longer than than someone. You know, um, I had my baby at thirty three. And, you know, I'll be older if we have more kids. So I understand, you know, look at that logic. Um, I understand, you know, the the choices that women have to make in order to have a career versus a family. But for a company to make that for me is just unacceptable. You know, it's not changing the tone. It's not changing the dynamic. It's not changing the structure of it to really make it possible. You know, it's saying this is how we think that you should make it possible within the current paradigm.
2: Mark Twain House. They don't even have a little, like a little, nice little freezer where you know <laughs> I can put like
4: my that. eggs. The That's Twain right. House was great about you know everything that I've had to do as far as being a mother, but I wouldn't move into the corporate world where there's these other sort of constrictors on it.
3: All right, this is time for a James Hanley kneel before our corporate overlords. <laughs> I, I think this has very recognizable roots. I mean, you know, Facebook started what as a as a catalog of babes to chase down at Harvard. Um, I mean, <laughs> this is smart th- babes. I mean, this is something that, you know, male-dominated corporate uh, structure got together and they thought, hey, how do we get the babes to stay? You know, it's that sort of loony sort of attitude about it. Instead of thinking about family structure, how do you really foster – wouldn't it be better for you and your customers if you actually thought about families and how you actually – dealt with family issues like taking care of babies and taking care of different hours and make that possible instead of focusing all the attention on something. I agree about the choice to have, you know, to if you can technologically do this and it's possible for healthy babies to be born, that's a choice. Yes, you offer maybe, but you don't focus the whole attention on this to the complete des- detriment of a really balanced discussion, and it's one one of the things that really peeves me about this is that it's once again these giant corporations that are so big; they're so totally out of control in terms of thinking about what the real life of the people who work for them is, or the people who are their customers. I mean, Facebook has gone from a babe catalog to this giant corporation. Google, do no, you know, don't uh, don't be evil. And actually, they are so huge that. The question isn't even there anymore. The, many of the things they do are intrusive and dominant, and in, in in ways that you just don't get to question. And the customers, the families who work for them, that's not even an issue. Well, uh, let me just uh,
2: let me t- try to turn it. I'll go over to Steve amon on this, and let me see if I could just, in my way, in my devil's advocacy way, try to turn it a little bit. Um, first of all, I do want to say, you know, and this sort of feeds into Steve's overall premise. You know, every time there's a list of sort of countries that still do some barbaric thing like the death penalty or something like that. It, the U.S. is always on it along with these other countries that really don't resemble us at, yeah. in any level of industrialization or commitment to democracy. So the, um, the countries that don't actually mandate maternity leave as an act of law, uh, that they don't have federally mandated paid family leave, are the United States, Papua New Guinea, Suriname, and Liberia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so, point made. But, you know, is there a part of us, our mothers, my mother's not around anymore, but our mothers, if they were listening to this conversation and, and saying, really? You like, you could freeze your eggs so you would hack your productive years, your prime years, you could work, you know, and then maybe have some more options? I didn't have any options like this. And you guys are spitting at it. Um, this sounds like pretty cool. I mean, uh, we wish we'd at least had that choice nobody offered us a choice like that
0: yeah well that may, maybe so i mean my mom was a working mom who felt a lot of him i mean I think fundamentally the culture doesn't want to deal with how complicated it is to try to be a mother or a member of a family and also be loyal to your overlord, your corporate overlord. And what we're seeing in a story like this is the codification of the idea that really what those corporations are interested in, and I know because my brother is in high tech, is keeping you in the office and making your first loyalty to the company, which isn't them being bad. It's actually just a corporation. It's like when people say, gee, maybe the NFL will improve. And I have to explain. Mm-hmm. It's a corporation. It has a mm-hmm. cash register. We well,
4: have isn't a conscience. It technically Nonprofit.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's a whole other <laughs> issue. But, but it's, a story like this essentially brings into focus the reality of what it's like to turn over so much of our identity to cor- the, what we call corporate America. Their values are to keep people in the office. So they give them free snacks and a shower and they, they run the shuttle at all hours and so forth. And the point is keep them in the office, keep right. them working, and keep them identified with the idea that their source of s- sense of self in the world is being an effective worker and i don't mean this in some it's it's orwell by choice this is this is not big brother this is our complicity We've agreed to this. The only reason Facebook is a big deal and Google's a big deal and Twitter and the rest of it is because we have consented. We That's partake right, absolutely. Uh, well, that,
2: and that, that sort of does lead us to. I mean, we only have like maybe three or four minutes to talk about this, but one of the other topics we, we talked about talking today was was Amazon. Amazon, which really now has become exactly the kind of um, incredibly verticalized, scary monopoly that we used to be scared of. Except that you know the point that they're all making, that Steve's making right now, uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, is that fine line between the incredibly convenient and the insidious. I mean, Facebook does this all the time, flashes up an ad for something that we barely knew that we wanted, but their algorithms read enough about <laughs> us to sort of, sort of like, oh, They're yeah. going to want it. And, and a lot of time you look at it and go, well, that would be getting, I think I will get one of those. That's very convenient. Thank you. And thank you for freezing my eggs. That makes it a lot more e- easy. And Amazon, as you said in our, uh, in our emails, I mean, particularly for somebody like you with not a lot of allocable time, makes things really, really easy.
4: It does. And, it, and I hate myself for it. I'll say that straight off the bat. You know, for a long time, I resisted Amazon, honestly, didn't start doing it until um, we were going to have a baby. And I broke my leg and was stuck in the house for months and, and couldn't prepare for a child, couldn't do anything. And I discovered Amazon Prime. Um, and even now, as a, as a working mom, I'm not I don't want to spend my time going out to the store to get diapers or whatnot. I want to spend that time doing things with my husband, my kid, my friends, whatever. Um, and so it is a convenience and it's there and it shows up. But at the same time, sitting there going, but that means I'm not going down the street necessarily and supporting the local mom and pop like I could be. I do on certain things, but not to the extent that I could and should be. But that convenience is there and time has become such a commodity and they know that and so, they're exploiting it terribly, and I'm buying into it.
2: So, James, uh, James, it turns out that the one thing that Huxley and Orwell and people like that sort of missed is, you know, really one of the ways to cow people into submission. You don't even need to use fear. Right. You just have to make it really, really convenient exactly. for them to surrender stuff.
3: Get them get them to uh, really see how necessary it is that they have things. And, uh, and things one – of, one of the things to me that this this brings to mind immediately is sort of immediate gratification. I mean, to a certain extent – Obviously, you know, if you want to, a, 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 you know, you need a milk or something like that, you're unlikely, even if even if they have, uh, you know, a, 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 a helicopter delivery of, of milk, a it's dro- unlikely. A drone milk delivery. A drone milk delivery. You're probably not going to do that. You're probably going to go down the street. So uh, what we're talking about often are products that you could actually wait a little while for. You could actually uh, maybe within the community, if you like, you know, have a network of people that, you know, say they go shopping at the local bookstore because the local bookstore is run by a friend who has a, a place in the community and who brings interesting writers to town and makes the community something to me, um, it, it, that that it is a sort of sort of shocking and frightening thing that the need for instant gratification. You hear the piece of music, your iPhone identifies the piece of music in the club. You immediately go online and you have it so that it'll be sent to you by tomorrow morning. Program is actually called Shazam. If that makes you uh, well, even more yes, afraid. Well, yes, <laughs> uh, I, I just you know I mean as a person who really enjoys actually some of the waiting. That and also the fact that if you don't get instant gratification, you might change your mind, mm-hmm. and you might think about well, it. They don't want that. They don't <laughs> well, want you changing your precisely mind. Precisely. Exactly. We
2: have, we have to go to the next uh, segment. I do want to quickly say we're working on a uh, show right now with a writer named Paul Roberts, uh, whose book I think is called Impulse Society. It's about exactly what you're talking about. Right. That we have created a society in which there's no delay in between your impulse and the gratification of same. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We've got to do endorsements after this.
3: Like the
4: power 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 power
1: power and for a pledge of one hundred twenty dollars or more we offer a thank you gift Of the frozen eggs of Ophira Eisenberg, host of Ask Me Another. Wow, that is so wrong. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is John Francois. Sir Ray Hardman and Greg Hill appeared in our intro, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Collin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Al Michaels. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's favorite frozen duck egg recipes, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, show Dadaist thinker Christian Bach scrambles our non-frozen eggs. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, let me just
2: quickly say, Christian Bach, I mean, this is really true. If I could only follow one Twitter feed, one Twitter account in the world, I would follow Christian Bach. He's a Dadaist experimental poet. But his, his, his Twitter feed is about everything. He's really interested in really strange kinds of science and weird pictures of the universe and just... Oddities of all kinds. He's really just, at least on Twitter, a fascinating person. And I'm told (laughs) um, he's as fascinating as you can be on Twitter, which is still a limited thing, I think. All right, it's time to endorse things. Uh, We'll start with Tracy Wu Fastenberg. We'll have Steve Allman go last so he can kind of get the rhythm of endorsing.
4: Uh, the first thing I've got is the Mark Twain House Museum. We are bringing Noam Chomsky uh, to Hartford, and uh, we sold so many tickets right away that we had to move locations from our auditorium to Emmanuel Congregational Church. It's on October 24th at 7 p.m., and Colin himself is moderating, and I may just try to hide behind the chairs just so I can repeatedly be close to Mr. Chomsky. Um, and the other thing is getting out to local orchards and farms and all kinds of things. I love fall. I love autumn. Um, I may have dragged the family multiple times to the cider mill in Glastonbury and various orchards and things. So get out there and enjoy it and support those local businesses and make up for me going on Amazon.
0: <laughs> I'll,
2: I'll piggyback a quick endorsement, and that is John Keats's uh, poem to autumn, uh, which is the greatest poem about autumn ever. So you should when – you, when you have your kids in the car, the person who is not driving, the, the, uh, the family member who is not driving should read John Keats to your children so they, they know all about the bees and stuff like that. All right. Uh, James, you're next.
3: Um, There's a wonderful book I just finished reading called The Glass Cage, Automation and Us by Nicholas Carr, which um, actually has some connection with some of the things we've been talking about today in a sort of a bleak way. But it's about really the loss of human skills in important ways in that um, we are expecting automated objects and things and software to do things for us, like, for instance, airline pilots who are so used to flying the plane by autopilot now with a computer doing it for eight or nine hours that if something happens, it may take them a few minutes to suddenly try and call up the skills. Uh, it's an amazing book, a very intense and uh, very detailed and really makes you think about how you use machines um, the other thing is, do not miss Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. 4K ultra high definition, beautiful restoration of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo at Sony Studios, starting Sunday, running through Wednesday. All right, uh, I'll just piggyback. I'll do another piggyback here, because um, they're all inspiring
2: me so much. Um, if you want to read a novel, there's so many novels and movies written about sort of the thing that Nicholas Carr is talking about in that book. And by the way, we're also working on a show with Nicholas Carr, also who also wrote The Shallows. He's a great sort of digital declinist thinker. Um, but here's an overlooked fictional work. It's called Mockingbird by Walter Tevis. Walter Tevis, oh, yeah. you probably know Walter. Yes. Tevis Walter Tevis yes. is only an underrated novelist in general. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he did write the, the big The Pool movie, The, the Hustler, uh, the, the book that that movie was based on. But basically his books are really way, way underrated. And Mockingbird is about a world in which people have forgotten how to read. Nobody can read uh, and, and what that means. It's like just a really terrific book. All right, Steve, you have the floor.
0: Well, okay, a couple, of, a couple of books. The first one, and this is going to be uh, completely predictable, it's a new book called Cowardice, a short history by the writer Christopher Walsh. It's from uh, Princeton University Press. And it is, as you might expect, all about cowardice, our cultural definitions of cowardice going back to the Greeks, Achilles, Hector, Paris, and all the way up to not just uh, what was happening after the attacks of September 11, 2001, but also the way in which uh, coward and cowardly and so forth was thrown around uh, after the marathon bombings up in Boston. Uh, A fascinating book, amazing, and also a novel. And you can get these, by the way, not on Amazon. Interestingly, neither of these books is available on Amazon, so don't even go on Amazon attempting to get them. Mm -hmm. But they're available on other, uh, other websites or even a local bookstore. A novel called Hold the Dark by my pal William Giraldi, um, who's one of my maybe my favorite writer in the world and not just because he's my ride back to Boston. And he will be tonight in his ladies underwear with me at this masculinity, it's discontents panel that should be pretty amazing with Pesca, Mike Pesca uh, moderating at Real Artways. And Hold the Dark is just chilling and dark and all about what it means to be in a country that's at war with itself and others. And it's remarkable.
2: All right, that really is looking like a remarkable panel, panel tonight at uh, Real Artways. And so I hope you, you got that message in at 7.30, right? At 730. Correct. Uh, all right, so it's really But the cotillion cool. comes first. Right, yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, And then – My
0: uh, panties
3: ironed.
2: <laughs> um, I hate that word. <laughs> iron? You hate the word iron? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to endorse uh, the Hooker Day Parade. The Hooker Day Parade uh, – uh, you should go to the Hooker Day Parade once anyway. There's two parades in Connecticut that you should go to once. <laughs> At least. And, I <laughs> just mean, once. Yeah, maybe more times, but I mean, if it, you find it an inconvenience. One of them is the boombox parade in Willimantic, I mean which is on the 4th of July, and it just is really – you know, this amazing thing. And the Hooker Day Parade, which is often, over the course of its history, suffered slightly from having more people in it than are watching it. Um, in fact, that probably is almost a chronic condition for the Hooker Day Parade. But it really does bring out some of the zaniness uh, of uh, of Hartford, which is not known for its zaniness, but which does, in fact, contain a great zaniness. So, I'll go to the Hooker Day Parade, which I can tell you, it's in downtown Hartford. I mean, you should know that part. No, I guess I can't tell you. I believe it starts at 2.30. I'm going to say it starts at 2.30. If I'm wrong, I'll check Twitter or something and I'll correct. I'm pretty sure it starts at 2.30. But anyway, that's on Saturday. That's the main thing that you need to know. It's on Saturday. And then the other thing I'm going to – this is like the most – I don't know. This is probably the most frou-frou endorsement that I've ever done. Um, But that is – So, I like wine, okay? And I'm not just endorsing wine, though. I mean, it's a little bit more specific than that. (laughs) I like wine. So, and what I notice is uh, if you like French wine, you go into like wine stores, and there's just like these huge boxes of wine from Bordeaux everywhere, right? Bordeaux, 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 you know? And it's like they really want you to buy Bordeaux or something, which is fine. and, And it's, you know, but there's like France is like this really big country. They have all kinds of interesting wine regions that are, you know, and then you have to, you actually have to ask the guy at the store, is there like any French wine here that is not? Board now. Uh, and then they bring you this little dusty rack over in the back. So uh, I'm just sort of encouraging you to investigate some of these other regions. Uh, a lot of regions way in the south of France are, are really cool. And I'm going to – I'll give you a specific example. Uh, Marselan. That's M-A-R-S-E-L-A-N. I'm probably not giving it a really good French pronunciation. Um, but It's a, it's a French uh, red grape variety that's sort of a cross between – it is a cross between Cabernet Sauvignon and Grenache. This is the kind of thing that Rand would endorse. <laughs> uh, and anyway, it's a great wine. There's a label called Mont Pre Carre, uh, which uh, is cheap, like $13, 14 bucks. You can probably get it around here somewhere. So try that. Don't just drink Bordeaux wine all the time. I do want to thank uh, our panel today, and that once again is uh, Steve Almond. Uh, go see him tonight at Real Artways. James Hanley, uh, and you can go uh, and put your masculinity on the line and go to the sing along, uh, Sound of Music, and that's uh, Saturday at two thirty. If you're not at the Hooker Day Parade. Uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg uh, is uh, what actually is your title at the Mark Twain House?
4: Director of Development.
2: Director of <laughs> Development. I knew it was something very important uh, <laughs> at the uh, Mark Twain House and yes they do have a great event coming up involving the Broadway musical Wicked and Frank Rizzo and Stephen Schwartz and uh, Gregory Maguire and then uh, Noam Chomsky and I are going to get together. We'll sing a couple of songs uh, from Wicked that night and then just segue into Rodgers and Hammerstein which we feel Noam and I is our big strength.
1: Hey Bob, Farmington, yeah 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 on the radio See you on the radio on the radio baby You me talking loud down on the covers at him who I see you on the radio Candidate Hill I propose we end this debate and go in peace May the wind always be at your back
0: Oh uh, oh well great Thank you
3: Miss Wolf <laughs> ah!